Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name is Hal Jones. I'm the director of the Rothermere American Institute, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to the final lecture uh, in what's been a really outstanding series uh, of lectures that we've been holding here at the Institute to commemorate the 100th anniversary of U.S. entry uh, into the First World War. And as ever, we're, we're very grateful uh, to Mary Jo Jacoby and Patrick Jeffson for, for their support of this series, which has is, which is made, made it possible. Um, I think we're, we're finishing on a, on a very high and exciting note uh, this afternoon. Uh, I think it's a, it's a cliche, perhaps, to say that a speaker requires no introduction, but uh, I think that in the case of Professor Margaret McMillan, our speaker this afternoon, the cliche is very apt. Uh, as the warden of St. Anthony's College since 2007 and as professor of international history at Oxford, she's well known and hugely admired here at the university. Uh, having come to Oxford myself as a fellow at St. Anthony's, uh, I know how much the college has benefited from her good sense and leadership, both of those very important things, uh, how much it has grown and prospered during her tenure, and how pleased and proud students, colleagues, and Antonians the world over have been uh, to have her at the helm. On her watch, not only has the college uh, gained some impressive buildings and become physically a much more exciting place, uh, but also even more importantly, it has, with Margaret's constant support, become an ever more exciting place intellectually. Uh, as a leading hub within the university for postgraduate studies in the fields of international affairs and modern history, and as home to many of Oxford's regional study centers, St. Anthony's has always had a rich academic life of its own, and Margaret's done a really amazing job of building on that strong tradition. So I know the college feels very lucky to have had her for as long as it has, and as she prepares to step down from the wardenship at the conclusion of this academic year, we here at the RAI are pleased to have her with us, not just so that we can benefit from her insights as a historian this afternoon, but also uh, so that we can take this opportunity to pay tribute to her achievements as a scholar and her, and her many contributions to the collegiate university. Of course, Margaret also needs no introduction in the sense that she will be well known uh, to all of you as a leading historian of the First World War, widely recognized for her work both on the Paris Peace Conference uh, and on the origins of the war. Uh, so Margaret came at, at these things in, in a bit something of reverse order, uh, writing first uh, Peacemakers, the Paris Conference of 1919 and its attempt to make peace. Uh, North Americans among you may know it as Paris 1919, six months that changed the world, but uh, uh, this book was hugely um, influential, widely recognized when it was published, winning the Duff Cooper Prize, the Samuel Johnson Prize for nonfiction, the Hessel Tiltman Prize for history, uh, the Silver Medal for the Council on Foreign Relations, Arthur Ross Book Award, and the Governor General's Prize for nonfiction in 2003. So it had, had quite a run and, um, and was, was a, great, uh, a great work. And she has uh, more recently published, uh, I think, thinking of the centennial uh, of the war, um, the War That Ended Peace, How Europe Abandoned Peace for the First World War, uh, released in, in 2013. Uh, so she's looked at both the, the end and the beginning, and, um, and we're looking forward to hearing what she has to say today about America and, uh, and, the, and the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, of course, her range extends well beyond World War I. She's the author of other works, including Women of the Raj uh, on, on women in British India, Nixon in China, The Week That Changed the World, uh, and um, The Uses and Abuses of History, and History's People, Personality and History, some, some broader reflections uh, on, on the, the sweep of history. 
Um, prior to taking on the wardenship here, uh, Professor McMillan was provost of Trinity College, uh, Toronto, and a professor of history at the University of Toronto. She was educated there and here, so uh, she was a student at St. Anthony's before coming back uh, as warden. And she was, uh, from 1975 until 2002, uh, a professor of history at Ryerson University in Toronto, where she served as chair of the department. Uh, she's spoken extensively uh, in media to lots of different audiences about her work and about World War I during this uh, centennial period. Uh, and she has uh, relatively recently been uh, promoted to uh, a companion uh, of the Order of Canada in her native Canada. So uh, it's a real honor and a pleasure, Margaret, to have you with us, and we appreciate your uh, finishing out our, uh, our series of lectures this term. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hal. That was a lovely introduction, and it's a great pleasure to be here. I think of all the places I speak, I think speaking to, to colleagues um, at Oxford is, is, is probably the nicest thing that I could possibly be doing. Um, and it's, it's made me think again about the ending of the First World War, which was quite a while now since I looked at it, and I've gone back and looked at what I wrote then and, and was amazed at how much I once knew. <laughs> it's a very pleasant surprise to, to look at it. But it, I'm, I'm glad I've had this opportunity because it's made me think again about the ending of the war. As you know, it remains extremely controversial. The standard view still, which I happen to think is wrong, is that what was done in Paris in 1919 led directly to what happened in 1939, that the decisions made in 1919 at the end of the First World War created the Second World War. My view is this is much too simple an explanation um, briefly, uh, one can say, and I often do say, what was everyone doing between 1919 and 1939? I mean, a number of things were happening, a number of events were taking place, and a number of decisions were being made. And I like to think that things are not foreordained in history, certainly over a period of 20 years. But the common view, I think, the popular view, is that the Paris peace settlements, which is what they should properly be called, not just the Treaty of Versailles, led to the Second World War. The most I would say is that they helped to create some of the conditions for the Second World War, but so did a great many other things. Versailles, the Treaty of Versailles, is often used by people as a sort of shorthand for those peace settlements, but it was, in fact, as you know, one, only one of the treaties that was signed there. A number of treaties and international agreements were signed in Paris in 1919 and 1920. Five separate treaties with the defeated powers, but the Treaty of Versailles was the first it was the most complex to negotiate and it provided a model for the other treaties. It was the treaty with Germany, the treaty that uh, was made with the country that had been at the heart of the central powers. <coughs> and also for the United States was the single most important treaty. The United States did not sign all the other treaties. It hadn't in fact been at war with a number of the other countries. Um, for example, it had never been at war with the Ottoman Empire. I'm going to concentrate on the United States and the Treaty of Versailles, also because it was the one that the United States itself put the most effort into and the one on which Woodrow Wilson himself played the greatest part. He came to Paris for it. He left the United States in December 1918, and he left Paris on June the 28th, 1919, just after the Treaty of Versailles had been signed at, of course, in the Great Palace at Versailles. He went back to the United States briefly in that period for a month, traveling, of course, in those days by boat. He went back on February the 14th and came back on March the 14th. 
almost, is certainly unprecedented in terms of American history for a president in office to leave the United States like that. And I think we will never see another American president being away from the United States for such a period. I mean, most, when presidents leave the United States today, it's for three days, four days, possibly a week. The idea that an American president would go and sit in a foreign capital with foreign leaders and negotiate peace treaties, as I say, is something that is absolutely unthinkable today. There are a number of myths about the involvement of the United States in those peace negotiations, just as there are a number of myths about the Treaty of Versailles. The standard myth, and as I say, it remains like the, the, the myth about the Treaty of Versailles, very, very powerful, is that Woodrow Wilson came like Sir Galahad, clad in white, across the ocean, bearing the gift of eternal peace. And he was greeted on the shores of Europe by a crew of black-hearted Europeans, deeply cynical, admired in their old ways, who simply wanted to destroy it, who, had, who, who did not want peace, um, whose hearts were set on revenge and war. Wilson is sometimes portrayed as a sort of messiah, sometimes portrayed more unkindly by people like John Maynard Keynes as an innocent who was bamboozled by the Europeans. If any of you have read The Economic Consequences of the Peace, um, it is a great work of polemic, I think not a great work of history, or indeed a great work of economics, but as I say, a great polemic. He does portray Wilson as someone in a child's, you know, the child's game of, of, of the blind man's bluff. Uh, Wilson being spun round and round and round by the wily Europeans, not knowing whether he was coming or going and doing exactly what they wanted, and creating a peace that was vindictive, which tried to destroy Germany, and again, which led to so much of the trouble. The source of the myths, I think partly John Maynard Keynes, the economic consequences of the peace, is something that I suppose every academic dreams of writing. He wrote it in about six months in the summer of 1919, and it's never been out of print <coughs> since. It's a wonderful, as I say, wonderful work of polemic. And the other sketches that, Wilson, that, that Keynes does of Clemenceau, who he portrays as an old ape lying in a chair with his half-hooded eyes, with his arms stretched out, dreaming only of revenge on Germany. Lloyd George, he portrays, he took some of this out of his book because his mother said it was a bit unkind, <laughs> but Lloyd, jo Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, he portrays as a half-human, half-goat who comes out of the mists of Wales, out of ancient antiquity. I mean, it's extraordinary stuff <laughs> when you think about it. Um, and together they weave their spells around, as I say, this, this innocent. The myth was also fostered by people like Ray Stannard Baker, who worked very closely with Wilson, the great muckraking journalist who thought Wilson was the only good and pure and noble person in Paris. Also promoted by people like the young William Bullitt, a very rich young American from Philadelphia. He was the one who was sent off to look at the Russian Revolution and see if it was working or not, and came back and, and helped to conclude that it was. And the myth, as I say, is a very powerful one, that Wilson was an innocent, perhaps a clever innocent, perhaps an easily bamboozled innocent, depending on your perspective, who brought something to Europe, which the Europeans then rejected. My own view is that this is much too simple, that Wilson was not such an innocent. He had a very good idea of American power, and he was prepared to use it. And he was not completely at odds with the Europeans. Europeans had just come through a dreadful war. And the idea that Europeans wanted more war, that they wanted more of what they had just come through, I think is, is absolutely wrong. What a lot of Europeans wanted was an end to war. They knew very well what war had done to their society. There was a feeling 
among Europeans that their civilization had been wounded, perhaps fatally, by, by the end of the war in 1918. And what they wanted was ways of preventing such a war happening again. Many of those in Paris had lost family members. In Paris itself, you could see people dressed in black who were mourning those who died. And you could easily go, as many at the peace conference did, up to the former battlefronts. It was only a short drive out of Paris until you got to the battlefronts. And of course, in those days, the battlefronts were still fresh. The ground was still freshly torn up. And there were lots of makeshift graves, and indeed lots of people who had only yet been partially buried. So that the idea that Europeans didn't know what the war had done, I think, is, is absolutely wrong. And a lot of Europeans, even before the war, had been talking about the very sorts of things that Wilson was talking about. They had been talking in Europe in the 19th century about ways of maintaining peace internationally. They'd been talking about using arbitration instead of resorting to war as, as a means of settling dispute. They had talked about international law. They had talked about disarmament. There'd been two big disarmament conferences at The Hague shortly before the First World War. And so the idea that Europeans came from a different planet than Americans, I think, was absolutely wrong. In many cases, Europeans wanted exactly the same sorts of things that Woodrow Wilson was talking about. But what Europeans also wanted, and of course it depended very much on where you were, was security. And I think we have to understand the national interests and the concerns and, and the fears of those who came to Paris to make peace. Now, as you probably know, the peace conference that met in Paris in January 1919 was meant to be the preliminary peace conference. What most statesmen thought and foreign offices thought is that the peace would be made in the way that peace had been made at the end of the Franco-Prussian War, peace had been made at the end of the Russo-Turkish War, peace had been made at the end, of course, of the Napoleonic Wars, and that was with a full-scale peace conference conference where victors and, and losers sat down together and hammered out peace agreements, peace treaties, and then they all signed them. And so what they thought would happen in Paris is they would do something similar, but because making the peace was so complex, because there were so many allies, and there were almost 30 depending on how you counted them, the United States technically was not an ally, it called itself very firmly an associate, and I think that said something about American attitudes and, and how they saw themselves. But there were a number of nations, far more than had been at most other big international conferences in Paris. And the differences among them, of course, were great. And so what they thought is they would have a short preliminary peace conference, and then probably in a month they would be able to present peace terms to Germany and the other defeated nations. Well, it took them so long to agree on any peace terms that it was by not until May that they had agreed on the terms to be offered to Germany. And by that point, they feared that if they didn't present the terms quickly and get a peace signed quickly, they would not be able to get anything signed at all. There were already serious divisions between, for example, the Italians and their allies over the peace terms. The Italians had walked out of the peace conference once and were threatening to walk out again. The Chinese, in the end, walked out and refused to sign the Treaty of Versailles, and the Japanese were threatening to walk out, and the Belgians as well, and possibly the Portuguese. And so what turned it, what was a preliminary peace conference, turned into the real thing. And in the end, the Germans were simply summoned and given their terms and told they could comment in writing, which is one of the many reasons why the Germans disliked the Treaty of Versailles so much. But there were other, much more important reasons, which I'll come to in a moment. And so simply getting agreement was, was not easy. And I think there were a number of reasons for this. One is that the national interests. The United States came to the peace conference saying we have no interests in gaining anything. We come in a completely disinterested spirit. We do not want anything for ourselves. We are not like those others who seem to want territory. We are absolutely disinterested. We simply want peace for the world. 
which was true and, of course, was not true. What the Americans also wanted was the extension of American trade. They wanted to consolidate what was now a very increasingly dominant American ec economic presence. And they wanted to move uh, British rivals aside. They wanted to move French rivals aside. They wanted a more dominant part in both trade and I, I think others would argue in international relations as well. For the Europeans, they could not afford to take such an attitude. They could not afford not to be interested in, in, in what happened, what territorial dispositions were made, what changes were made. The Italians wanted to round out their national borders, which they felt were incomplete, had, uh, were, were not um, based on, on, for example, in, in, the, um, in the north of Italy, they wanted to move their borders up to the highest point of the Alps. They wanted security on those southern slopes. And they also looked across the top of the Adriatic and wanted to move out there, which was going to be one of the big contentious issues. The French wanted, of course, security against Germany. The leaders of France, including Clemenceau, had seen France invaded twice by Germany in their lifetimes. Clemenceau had been a young man in Paris when the Prussians and the German Confederation had invaded in 1870. He'd seen what that had done to his country. It is said, it's only a legend, but it's said that when he died, he left orders that he should be buried facing, uh, straight up facing Germany. Um, not, it is only a legend, but I think it says something about him. But he was not, I think, obsessive about this. He was just realistic. Germany was more powerful than France, even after its defeat, and it was defeated in 1918, even after its defeat, it remained stronger industrially than France. Very little of the war had been fought on German soil. German infrastructure remained intact, which was certainly not true of France. Well over 40% of French industry had been destroyed. Its mines had been destroyed. Its dams had been destroyed. The north of France, the battlefields, is where a great deal of French wealth had been concentrated and a great deal of French industrial production had been concentrated. And a lot of that was lost. And I think we see it today. The north of France has never really recovered from that. And the French were very well aware of what they'd lost. They were well aware of how many men they'd lost. France lost more men of military age proportional to its whole population than any other country in the First World War with the possible exception of Serbia. And what they were also aware of was that the French birth rate was less than the German birth rate. And what that meant is the demographic gap between France and Germany was going to grow. In an era when countries relied on conscript armies, the number of men you could put into uniform actually mattered. And the French knew that unless something very strange happened and French women started having more children, which was not going to happen, they were going to reach a point in the 1930s where there would be a significant difference between the number of men they could put into uniform and the number of men the Germans could, be put, in, could put into uniform. French politicians from about 1919 onwards were referring to what they called the hollow years, those years in the 1930s when that gap was really going to be very big indeed. And so the French, I think, had every reason to fear the Germany of the future, and what they wanted was security. And what they initially talked about was, well, they, there were a number of things thrown around. They talked about dismembering Germany, reducing it back to its component parts as it had been before 1871. They also talked about detaching the Rhineland, that bit of Germany west of the Rhine, from Germany and incorporating it into France, and various very unpersuasive ethnic and historical arguments, well, the historical arguments were a bit more persuasive because the Rhineland had gone back and forth a bit between France and um, various German states. There were also ethnic arguments. You could see, said the French, when you went to the Rhineland, that even though everyone there spoke German, they were really French in spirit. 
they liked fine wines, they had a joie de vivre, and this, this, was, this was really what was being said. They had a joie de vivre which the Germans simply didn't have, and so they belonged with France. They were French, although they didn't realize it. There was going to be quite a lot of this in the peacemaking in 1919, about all the people who actually were of one culture and ethnicity who hadn't quite realized it yet. But the French, I think we have to understand what they'd lost and what they feared. Now, later on, this was seen as being unreasonable and unthinking and irrational by the Anglo-Saxons. But I think if you see it from the French perspective, they had every reason to fear a resurgent Germany. And their fears, as it turned out, were going to be absolutely right. The British also had their national interests. They were in the very fortunate position of having achieved most of them by the time the peace conference started. What they wanted was to destroy the German Navy, which had been, or, or neutralize the German Navy, which had been such a threat to Britain before the First World War, and they had achieved that. The surface fleet had surrendered and was at Scapa Flow off the north of Scotland, and the German submarine fleet had also surrendered. And so German naval power, from the British point of view, had been neutralized. The British were now going to be secure in a way that they hadn't been before 1914. And Britain had also gained the German colonies that it wanted. There'd been a whole series of um, wars throughout Africa and in the, in the Pacific, where Australia, for example, had taken, German, uh, taken New Guinea from Germany. Um, South Africa had taken what became German Southwest Africa and Namibia today, and so on. And so the British had essentially acquired everything they wanted before the peace conference opened, which meant they could afford to take a slightly more high moral tone than the French could. The one thing the British still wanted was a share of whatever payments Germany was going to make by way of either indemnities or reparations. And this was an, an issue for, for, for the British because what Woodrow Wilson had said very clearly was that he would not tolerate indemnities or fines on the defeated nations, but he would allow reparations, repairs for damage done by war. And the, point, the problem from the British point of view, of course, was that most of the damage done by German armed forces had been, uh, certainly in the West, in, in Belgium and France. Uh, a few British ports had been shelled by British naval vessels, and few Zeppelins had flown over or, or sailed over places like London and dropped a few bombs, but that damage didn't amount to all that much. And so what the British were trying to do was think of things that could be added to any reparations bill. And they argued that any merchant shipping, for example, sunk during the war by German action should be added to any reparations bill. And then Jan Smuts, the South African prime minister who had enormous influence in Britain and was seen as, as a highly um, moral and ethical person, came up with the brilliant idea of including all the pensions of widows and orphans of those soldiers who fought in the First World War which would give the British a much greater shape, a much greater share of the reparations bill. So the British still had a few things they wanted, but as far as security went and the acquisition of colonies, they already had what they wanted. And so they were able to take a slightly more detached view, although not entirely, than the French. And so what you had as the peace conference opened was very different national interests. And then, of course, you had the Americans coming in, and, and there is still a debate over how much influence the Americans had. The Americans were economically much stronger than they had been at the beginning of the war. And the United States had gone from being a debtor nation to becoming a creditor nation around 1916. After 1916, the Allies had had to borrow in the American money markets if they needed to keep their war effort going. They were borrowing everywhere. They were also borrowing from my own country, Canada, but it was the United States that had the capacity to lend to keep the war effort going. 
And so increasingly, the British owed money to the United States. Um, the Europeans, British, by, by 1919, owed, owed about $10 billion, which in those days was a very large sum indeed. And the other European nations collectively owed about the same amount. Russia was never going to pay. The Russians had had a revolution and the Bolsheviks had canceled all debts. Germany and, uh, sorry, France and Italy were going to be very, very hard pressed to pay indeed. The Americans, therefore, had a great deal of economic leverage which they could exert at the peace conference, and they were prepared to do it. The trouble with economic leverage, as I think we've seen in the case of Greece, is it doesn't always do what you think it is going to do. That countries still have ways of resisting pressures, even if there is huge economic pressure on them. And the British were not prepared to go along with everything the Americans want, wanted, and the French and the Italians certainly were not. Um, they had other things to worry about. Now, the Americans brought with them, of course, their own attitudes towards international relations. As I say, not that different in many cases from the sorts of things the Europeans were thinking about. But I think what does make the American involvement at Paris different, and I think you see it even a bit with Canada and Australia, is a sense that they are part of Europe, but they've moved beyond it. A very complicated set of feelings, um, and I, I speak as a Canadian, but I think it was true of Americans as well, that they looked at Europe as a source of many of their people, many of their institutions, many of their ideas, but they felt that they had somehow moved beyond Europe. And you get a lot of talk about how Europeans had moved out into the world and become different. They were in a different climate, they'd been transplanted, in other words, into a different sort of soil. They were younger, they were more vigorous, their societies were younger, and the Europeans really should listen to them. And I think this is something quite important. And so what you get, I think, on the part of the United States is very complex feelings towards Europe. Admiration on the one hand, Woodrow Wilson himself was a great admirer of the British Parliament. In fact, he did his best to turn the Senate, um, with very little success, into something like the British Parliament. Um, he, he tried to behave as a prime minister would have behaved. And many of his, his, his ideas had, had indeed come from British thinkers such as, such as John Locke. What you also got, however, on the part of the Americans, and again, I think it's true of other colonies founded by, by Europeans such as Canada, was a feeling that they were somehow exceptional. And of course, this is very pronounced in the case of the United States. It goes back to the, to the revolution. The United States had, by revolting against Europe, set itself to creating a new sort of society. And American exceptionalism is something, I think, which we still see as a factor in American politics. And a feeling more that the United States was not just exceptional, but it was a model for the rest of the world. That it was, in some ways, something the rest of the world should model itself on. And I think, again, we, we still see this. If only you got, during Bush II administration, American uh, leaders saying, and, and Bush himself saying it, if only the rest of the world would adopt American ways of doing things, adopt American free trade, adopt American capitalism, adopt American democracy, then the world would become a more peaceful place. And that was certainly there in Paris in 1919. You also have, as, as you still have in the United States, that tug between seeing the United States as a country which ought to look outwards, whether for moral reasons to offer hope to the rest and, and leadership to the rest of the world, or because the United States was engaged with the rest of the world. And that's always been a tension in the United States between those who argue that and those who argue the United States doesn't need the rest of the world. Um, it wasn't called isolationism then, that was a word which only came into use in the 1920s, but there was always that tug between those who said we ought to be, and in fact we are engaged in the rest of the world, and those who said we don't need the rest of the world. And geography, of course, plays a very large part in that, as does American exceptionalism. 
Certainly in the Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, and then the Wilson administrations before and, and during the First World War, you see the United States moving more in the direction of involvement. Its foreign policy had gradually be been becoming more activist. Before the First World War, the United States had repeatedly been involved <coughs> in the Caribbean and in Central America and in Mexico, um, usually seeing its involvement as, as something that was beneficial to those parts of the world, not necessarily um, simply protecting American interests. There's a wonderful moment where Wilson says, when he's dealing with some, well, a very complicated issue in Mexico, he says, we will make them democratic in spite of themselves. And that was, I think, rather a, a sort of common American view, and, and perhaps is still there. The Mon Monroe Doctrine, which no one has ever understood. There's a, the, I'm trying to think who said it, the, the, the Mexican thinker, and I can't remember his name, was it La Paz, who said the Monroe Doctrine is something that no American understands but will fight to the death to defend. <laughs> and I think there's something, and it, it changes in its meaning. I mean, initially it seems to have been hands off the new world and more of a sort of boast or, or a bluster than anything else because the United States had in the early 30s, 1830s no way of forcing the rest of the world to keep hands off the new world. But gradually it became um, a doctrine which, which argued that only, I think, the Americas should look after themselves and the United States should look after the Americas. And of course what you got by 1904 was the so-called Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine where Theodore Roosevelt said we will defend the integrity of the new world if necessary intervening throughout the new world to do so. And so it's much more activist foreign policy I think you're beginning to see. And of course the Spanish-American War leads the United States, which is already moving into the Pacific, more into the Pacific with the taking of the Philippines. And by the First World War, the United States now has a two-ocean navy. It's not yet a big military power. The American army is very, very small, very disorganized, as, as the First World War is, is going to prove. It proved very difficult for the United States to summon up the very large armies which it was going to have to send to Europe. But you can see the United States before the First World War, in spite of the tugs and pulls in American foreign policy and American thinking about the war, beginning to adopt more activist foreign policy, beginning to see itself more than just a regional power, beginning to, I think, see itself as, as some form of, of global power. And you can see the United States in the process of translating its growing, and it is growing very fast, economic strength into military strength. And so the United States brings a complex set of attitudes towards Paris. It is aware when it comes to Paris that it is very important now as an economic power that the European governments owe it a great deal of money. It has an increasingly large share of the <coughs> world's markets. It is producing, just to give you one statistic, something like 50% of the world's pig iron, which in those days was a measure of economic strength. And it's also aware that it has spent American money and American lives in the conflict in Europe. And so the United States wants something that is going to look like a better world. And of course, what it also has um, encapsulated in its leader is Woodrow Wilson, who very much, I think, represents this different set of strains and, and pressures in American foreign policy, who does look to Europe in some ways as a model, but does also understand the exceptionalism or appreciate the exceptionalism of the United States, and who does want to make a better world. I mean, Wilson, I think, very consciously insists that the United States will be an associated power and not an ally, and that's to indicate that the United States is somehow different from other powers in Europe. What Wilson wants and what Wilsonianism is, is something that is still debated, but basically the components are a new sort of world order based on open covenants, 
open agreements openly made, um, free international trade, disarmament, collective security, and very, very importantly, the spread of democracy. A belief, which I think still underpins a lot of American foreign policy, that the more the world becomes democratic, the more it is linked together by trade, the less likely nations in the world are to fight each other. This is, this is a very important set of ideas. What is also associated with Wilson, Wilson is the notion of national self-determination. Now, this is not a phrase that he himself used very much. And there is a story, unfortunately, I, I've never been able to find the source, but it is told by some at the time that Wilson reportedly said, if I had known how many nations there were in the world, I would never have mentioned self-determination. <laughs> um, it may or may not be true, but I think it's certainly something um, that he may well have felt. What he seems to have meant by self-determination was the right of people to choose their own governments. And that is not the same as full autonomy. He believed in the case of Austria-Hungary, for example, that the peoples of Austria-Hungary should have the opportunity to rule themselves. He did not, as far as we know, believe in the destruction of Austria-Hungary. And in fact, like many people, was amazed and astonished when it did disintegrate very quickly at the end of, of the summer of 1918. There is a very telling moment where Irish nationalists who had come to Paris asked to see Wilson to press their cause for an independent Ireland, and he refused to see them. He said, you live in a, in a democratic country with constitutional government, take it up with your own government. And so he was by no means someone who believed that every self-defined nation in the world should be independent. Um, but he did seem to think that the spread of democracy would give people more opportunity to read themselves. I think you also, um, the other third thing, the final thing I want to mention about Wilson, which is often, I think, not understood, is that he was, at that point, very anti-German. Not anti-Germany itself, but anti the sorts of things that Germany had done. And he was very critical of what he called Prussianism. Um, and he talks quite often in Paris, we, we have a fairly full record of what he was talking about, about the need to uproot militarism in Germany, the need to reform Germany, the need to create a stable republic in Germany. Germany, he believed, ought to pay reparations. Uh, he did not feel that Germany should be let off scot-free. He believed that Germany and its ally, Austria-Hungary, had started the First World War. He believed that Germany should give up its colonies. He believed that Poland should be back on the map of Europe, which meant a large proportion of German territory being added into a restored Poland. So Wilson was not someone who felt that Germany should be treated easily. And in fact, as the peace conference went on, he seems to become more and more exasperated with Germany. And, and th there's a famous moment when the terms of the treaty are handed over to the German delegates who have now arrived in Paris in May 1919. And Brockdorf Ransau, who is the German foreign minister at the time, makes a very speech that was taken as being very belligerent and defiant um, as these terms are handed over. And Wilson says, trust the Germans, they always do the wrong thing. He said, I'm so angry with them, I do not feel like treating them well. And so the idea that Wilson was, in some ways, someone who was inclined to go light on Germany, I think, was not true. He was prepared to see Germany a changed nation. He was prepared eventually to see it in the League of Nations once it had changed. But he felt that the Germany that the Allies had defeated and the Germany that they were dealing with in 1919 was a Germany badly in need of reform. I think you also have to take Wilson's own personality into account when you're looking at how the Americans behaved in Paris. I mean, I think he comes as an American, bringing with him American views and attitudes, bringing with him political pressures. But I think there's also something in, in Wilson's own nature which helps to affect the way in which the negotiations go on in Paris. 
that is, this is my own bias. I, I think at certain moments it actually does matter who's in a particular office. Wilson was, in many ways, I think, one of the most educated and intelligent presidents the United States has had in the modern age. He had had a distinguished career as president of Princeton and then as governor of New Jersey. He was very well read. He had traveled a bit before the war in Britain and, and, and I think a little bit in Europe. He did have a vision. He did have the big picture. He was one of those people capable of looking beyond the immediate and, and pressing concerns. But I think he also had defects. He was someone who tended to see his own virtues and miss those in other people. He tended to be very aware, very well aware of, of what was wrong in other people. He was aware of their vices and their weaknesses. He didn't see them in himself. He was intolerant. He was judgmental. He had an ability, and it is, comes out again and again in his career, to fall out with people. If you disagreed with Wilson, he tended to think in the end that you were somehow wicked, um, somehow a traitor. It was a pattern you, that, that was there at Princeton. It was a pattern in government. It was to be a pattern at Paris as well. Um, he was not someone who was good at taking disagreement. He also had enormous faith in his own ability to speak to the people. The French ambassador in Washington at the time said if he had lived in the 18th century, he would have been one of the greatest tyrants in the world because he saw elected representatives in some ways as an obstacle between him and the people. And again and again and again, he did it in his political career in the US, but he also did it in Europe. He said, I will speak directly to the people and they will understand me. He felt that the people, and this term the people is always a dangerous one, but he felt that something called the people understood him and he understood them and anyone who was sort of in between him and the people could be discounted and needn't be listened to. He also, I think, showed political weakness or folly in the way in which he put together the delegation that came to Paris. He failed to include leading Republicans in the delegation. If he'd been wise, he would have included Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, who was a leading Republican, who was not yet, and perhaps never was, the hardliner that he's been portrayed as, who did believe in some form of League of Nations, who, who was prepared um, to consider the possibility of, of a negotiated peace with Germany. But Wilson loathed Lodge. He saw him as, again, evil, as he tended to see his opponents, and did not include him. He included one nominal Republican who hadn't been a Republican, I think, since 1900 and was a very nice old man, but who really couldn't do very much. He also made the negotiating of the peace a, 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 a bipartisan, uh, a, a partisan issue. He said, and there was an election in, in the United States in, in 1918, he said, vote for the Democrats because they'll get you a peace. He did not um, admit that the Republicans would have a concern in peace, and I think this was a mistake. I think he laid up, as, as became very clear later on, trouble for himself. And so Wilson comes to Europe. He has to deal with the British, the French, who are the two most important European powers he has to deal with. Russia has temporarily, temporarily removed itself from the picture. Um, the Russians have had, of course, um, two revolutions in 1917. A civil war is raging in Russia. It's not at all clear what government is going to emerge there. In fact, the very, very scanty and interrupted communications between Russia and the rest of the world is very difficult for those in Western Europe to even get any idea of what's going on in Russia because a lot of communications have been cut. Um, most of the ambassadors have been withdrawn. Um, telegraphic communications are, are very, very slow and it's, it's really very difficult um, for people to go into Russia to find out what's going on. And the situation in Russia is very fluid. There was some talk in Paris of negotiating with the Russian government. 
Clemenceau was dead against it. He said, my own bourgeoisie will not have me talk to the Bolsheviks. There was also a significant number of white Russians in, in Paris who said it's not clear that the Bolsheviks, well they said with reason, it's not clear the Bolsheviks are the government of, of, of Russia. It wasn't clear they were going to stay. You should negotiate with us. It wasn't clear they were the government of Russia either. Um, so it was, it, was, it was very complicated. Plus, the Bolsheviks didn't want to negotiate with the Western powers. At that point, Lenin, the, the, the Russian leader, and Trotsky, his commissar of foreign affairs and organizer of, of the Red Army, believed that Europe was, and, the, and indeed perhaps a large swath of the world, was going to be um, turned over by revolution, and there was no need to negotiate with the capitalist powers, that they were going to be swept aside very soon anyway. Um, Trotsky famously went in to the Russian foreign ministry as commissaire of foreign affairs, um, published to the embarrassment of the Allies um, some very embarrassing secret treaties, including the secret treaties between Italy and the Allies, and, and published Sykes-Picot, which caused various amounts of embarrassment, and said, I'm just going to publish a few things and then I can shut up shop because we won't need a foreign ministry once the revolution has taken place. And so Russia, a great power in uh, abeyance at that point, was not involved in the negotiations. It was there in people's thoughts, and a lot of people have argued that some of the settlements made in Paris were made thinking in terms of some sort of cordon sanitaire around Russia. Um, perhaps Poland was made a bit bigger than it need have been, and Czechoslovakia and so on, in order to keep a barrier between Russia and the rest of the world. But Russia was not an active participant. Italy was really mainly concerned with Italian issues, and so it didn't get involved with other ones, and Japan was very much the same. Japan was treated as the fifth of the great powers in Paris, but in fact the Japanese delegates in Paris really only spoke on issues that affected Japan. And so the three key players were the United States, Britain, and France. I think the other important thing to remember is the context of within which they were working. We now know that European society was more resilient than it appeared at the time. We now know that Lenin's hopes and Trotsky's hopes and the hopes of many revolutionaries that Western society would be submerged in a wave of revolution, that the Russian Revolution had been the spark um, in, in Lenin's, term, Lenin's image that set off the prairie fire. That wasn't going to happen. We now know that revolution was going to subside, but that's not how it felt in 1919. In 1919, there was a communist revolution in Hungary, there was a communist revolution in Bavaria, there were close to um, dangerous insurrections in the streets of many of the big European cities. On May the 1st, 1919, May Day, there were pitch battles in the streets of Paris between radical workers, not of all whom are radical, but a fringe of radical workers, and the, and, the, and the police and the army, and the peace conference basically had to shut down for the day. And so there were fears. They were working under pressure that if they didn't get some sort of peace settlement soon, if they didn't calm things down, then things were going to get very much worse. There were also fears that the economic misery, which was hitting so much of the center of Europe, was going to get much worse. The breakup of Austria-Hungary had broken up an economic organism, had broken up an economic um, entity, and suddenly food which had moved from, say, what was now Romania into what was now Hungary didn't move. The coal which had once come to heat Vienna no longer came because it was in a different country. Rolling stock disappeared into one country as each country tried to grab um, train, locomotives and, and rolling stock for themselves. The barges that went up and down, that had gone up and down the Danube, stopped going because no one could agree on who owned them and, and there were new customs barriers. And so, things like the International Red Cross were reporting they were seeing diseases in Vienna, one of the most prosperous cities in Europe which they hadn't seen in generations. People were starving. 
children were starving, children had rickets. I mean, there was real misery in large parts of Europe. And so I think they were working under a considerable sort of pressure. What they were also having to deal with was nationalisms and the disappearance of what had been a German empire, the disappearance of what had been a Russian empire, the disappearance, of course, of Austria-Hungary, and about to disappear, the disappearance to come of the Ottoman Empire meant that suddenly it was possible for nations which had not ever thought in terms of, of full independence to imagine it. And so what you got in the center of Europe was a jostling for land, for territory. A lot of the states that emerged in the center of Europe emerged without the peace conference setting them up. They emerged on the ground and then the peace conference in many cases recognized the borders, in some cases changed them, uh, it recognized the governments that formed them. Yugoslavia, not known as Yugoslavia yet, known as the, the kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, emerged on its own and then the peace conference recognized what was in effect a fait accompli. Poland was re-emerging on the map of Europe not because the peace conference was doing anything about it. Czechoslovakia emerged as a nation because it, its people or its leaders were, were coming together. Romania was grabbing a very large piece of Hungary, um, which it was going to hang on to. So the peace conference in many cases was simply putting a stamp of approval on what had already happened on the ground. And a whole series of small wars were breaking out as these, in Poland's case, old nations and sometimes new nations fought each other to gain territory. <coughs> and there was a moment in the peace conference where the Council of Four, which was the smallest group which finally came to be set up with Wilson, Orlando, Clemenceau and Lloyd George, was talking about yet another war which had broken out. I think it was between Poland and the new state of Czechoslovakia. And they called in Marshal Foch. They said, we must stop this. And Marshal Foch said, of course, the Supreme Allied Commander, I will do whatever I'm told just order me, and they said, well, send troops and, and stop this war at once, because they don't seem to be listening to us. And Foch said, of course, I always obey orders, but I'd like to point out I have no troops and we have no railways to get them there. And so there was something like consternation, and, they, and Lloyd George, who was always optimistic, said, I have the solution. And they all sort of looked at him with relief, and he said, we will send both sides a very strong telegram. <laughs> but I think it does indicate that Allied power was, was waning. It was not as great as it had been. It's, capacity of the Allies to protect their project their power into the center of Europe, much less into Anatolia or the Caucasus, was waning. And the armies, the great armies, were being demobilized. The navies were beginning to be reduced in size. In some cases, there were mutinies by soldiers or sailors who felt that the process of demobilization was too slow. And what is more, publics at home no longer saw any reason to go on paying very high taxes. Treasuries, finance ministries were begging their governments to begin to cut back. And so I think you simply have to remember the context in which the peace was made. A number of things happening on the ground, fears of revolution, and a sense, rightly, that their own power is waning. Well, the Treaty of Versailles was hammered out in this context, and it was not easy to do. The key players, as I say, France, Britain, and the United States. The Americans, the British, agreed with the French that Germany should pay reparations for the war damage that was done. They agreed with the French that German military power should in some way be limited. They agreed that those in Germany responsible for the war, the Kaiser and, and certain generals, should be tried. There was, there was talk of, of, of war crimes trials. But what they didn't agree was on how, how this should be done. And the French, for obvious reasons, tended to take the most extreme view. But in the end, and I think this is often forgotten, the French backed down. Clemenceau backed away from a lot of pressure from his own people to, dis 
to, to call for the dismemberment of Germany. He backed away from claims on the Rhineland. He agreed that it would be uh, demilitarized and that the Allies would hold for a period of years three key bridgeheads over the Rhine River. He backed away from German demands, uh, French demands for the Saarland, very, very important coal mining area just over the border from France in Germany, which from the French point of view was necessary, the output of those mines was necessary to replace the French mines that had been destroyed in the fighting and destroyed deliberately by German forces as they were withdrawing in 1918. The French needed coal, it was still the, the most important fuel in the world. The French backed away from that. They backed down on the amount of reparations they were going to demand. What they got in return was an Anglo-American guarantee that if France were attacked by Germany again, both Britain and the United States would come to its defense. And that guarantee turned out not to be worth the piece of paper that it was written on. Um, the Americans failed to ratify it, and when the Americans failed to ratify it, the British said, well, we only did it with the Americans. Since they're no longer doing it, 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 it no longer stands. And so there were compromises made. The treaty was drawn up. It was drawn up in haste, and in the end it was thrown together, perhaps too hastily. No one read through the whole thing before it was sent to the printers. And so there were 440 articles, some of them very grand, and some of them you wonder what they were doing in the treaty. The covenant of the League of Nations was in the first section. Woodrow Wilson had insisted on that. Germany was not initially to be a member, but what was left open was that it could apply for <coughs> membership once it had turned itself into a different sort of country. So you've got the big world picture in the League of Nations, and then you also got things further on. The skull of an African king, which was in the German Ethnographic Museum in Berlin, should be returned to that African colony. And th these were things that were thrown in, and it tended to make the treaty look a bit silly. But I think it did contain some very useful parts. Part one was the League of Nations. Parts two and three were dealing with Germany's new borders and various political clauses. Um, for example, there was going to be a plebiscite in Schleswig-Holstein, a much disputed bit of territory between Germany and Denmark, which was in fact held, and the northern part went to Denmark and the southern part went to Germany. Alsace-Lorraine, those two provinces taken in 1871, went back to France. The French got the right to the coal from the Saar for 15 years, but not the coal mines itself. At the end of 15 years, the people of the Saar voted to go join what was now Hitler's Germany. The Rhineland was demilitarized for a period of years. There were plebiscites on the eastern borders as well, where Poland was re-emerging. And in most of those cases, the plebiscites, I think, helped to fairly draw the boundaries. Where there were German majorities, those areas remained with Germany. Where there were Polish majorities, they went into Poland. And so the first three sections were perhaps, um, there certainly were things to argue about, and part four, German rights and interests outside Germany, colonies and concessions were also dealt with. And although German public opinion made something of this, in fact, I, my view, Germany was well off without the colonies. They had been on the whole unproductive and cost Germany a great deal of money, which it really didn't need to spend. Part five were the military, naval and air force terms. And these were to reduce Germany in a way that it could not be a threat to the, to the, to the peace of Europe anymore. For example, Germany was to have an army of only 100,000. It was not to have battleships. It was not to have submarines above a certain size, which is why the Germans developed pocket submarines. The problems with the military terms was that there was no mechanism to enforce them. They were to be enforced, well, there was a commission of inspection which had a very few number of people on it, and otherwise the Germans were expected to enforce the terms themselves. Well, you can probably guess what happened. 
Um, the Germans did not enforce the terms. Um, very rapidly, the German government did a deal with the Soviet Union where they could experiment with tanks and develop new kinds of weapons beyond, um, the, beyond the sight of the Allies. By the end of the 1920s, there was a joke in the Weimar cabarets that a man working in a pram baby pram factory, a perambulator factory, his wife was expecting a baby, and he smuggled bits of it out um, from the assembly lines, and he got it home, and a friend said, how's your new pram going? He said, it's very odd. He said, every time I put the pieces together, I get a machine gun. <laughs> so so I, it was understood. I mean, these, these jokes were being told in the cabarets in Berlin. Part six dealt with sort of usual sort of rather s important issues like prisoners of war and war graves, again, sort of non-controversial. Part seven dealt with uh, trying those who are guilty of the Kaiser. At one point, there was a talk of sending the Kaiser to the Falkland Islands, um, <laughs> which would be an alternative, very interesting piece of alternative history. <laughs> it was part eight, which was going to <coughs> cause a lot of trouble, and that was the reparations part. Article 231 which started the reparations section, said that Germany accepts responsibility for the war. And this became known to the Germans as the War Guilt Clause. It was a conscious decision of Brockdorf Rantzau, and then it was followed by successive foreign ministers and by successive um, governments in Germany to pick on that clause and to claim that Germany was being asked to take guilt for the war. Now, that was certainly in a number of the Allied minds, but it was actually put in to establish Germany's legal responsibility to pay. And it was written in part by young John Foster Dulles, a lawyer from the United States who was in the American delegation who felt that we need some base in order which to claim um, reparations from Germany. And the second clause that followed it, Article 232, said the reparations Germany shall pay, and I'm paraphrasing, will be based on Germany's capacity to pay. So that it was not an open-ended, unlimited set of payments. It was to be something to be negotiated and the figure was to be set by a reparations commission, which had to determine how much damage had been done, which was, not, of course, not easy at all. It took at least a year to even get some idea, and how much Germany could pay. And then the third thing it had to determine was how this might be done, how these large sums of money might be paid. In the end, what the reparations commission did, with the approval of the Allied governments, was fudge the issue. And they fudged it in a very unfortunate way. They knew, Britain and France knew, they were not going to get the money they wanted out of Germany. They knew it was impossible. And so what they did is divide, it's very technical, but briefly what they did is divide reparations into three. A had to be paid immediately, and Germany had in fact already paid both in gold and in kind. B, Germany would pay over time by issuing government bonds. C, which rep represented 83%, would not be paid until A and B had been paid. And everybody knew that the C part, the vast majority of the reparations amount would never be paid. What is more, there was no will in Germany to pay. And this is really, I think, why the treaty as a whole is seen as the shameful treaty, the dictated treaty, the treaty which was set out to, to destroy Germany, was that the German government, and importantly, I would say the majority of the German people had never accepted the fact of German defeat. They had been told until the war was nearly at an end, they were winning. It was only in the late summer of 1918 that the High Command actually let the civilian government know just how desperate things were on the Western Front. And that was as Allied troops were breaking through and pouring through German lines. And so the German public never truly understood that Germany had been defeated on the battlefield. And the war stopped, of course, before Allied troops were on German soil. 
with the exception of, of bridgeheads in the Rhine and, and the, the east, of course, was different. But it stopped before the troops got onto, onto German soil. So Germans themselves did not see the effects of what a losing a war could mean, having foreign troops, as the French had understood after 1871. They had had German troops in Paris. That didn't happen in Germany. In fact, the German soldiers marched into Berlin and the president at the time said, I welcome you back undefeated. And a myth sprang up that the Germans could have fought on. And of course, the high command sedulously propagated this myth. Germany could have fought on. It only had to ask for an armistice because it was stabbed in the back by traitors at home. Jews, socialists, liberals, communists, take your pick. The, these, these people had stabbed us in the back. It was very, very unfortunate. It, was, it marred the birth of the Weimar Republic and it was a burden it was to carry until it was finally destroyed. What is more, if you look at the terms of the armistice that Germany signed in 1918, November the 11th, it is a complete surrender. I mean, if you sign an armistice which says you're going to evacuate all your troops from allied soil, from your enemy soil, you're going to give up all your heavy equipment, you're going to give all your big guns, you're giving up your navy, you're giving up your tanks, that's a surrender. But it wasn't seen as that in Germany. I think the German public, and it was, I think, German elites that, that fostered this idea, argued that Germany had never been defeated. There was also an argument made that Germany thought it would get a fair peace, it would get a reasonable peace, because Woodrow Wilson had promised that peace would be made on the basis of the 14 points. In fact, there were many in Germany who thought Germany would actually grow in size rather than shrinking because self-determination would mean that all German territories in, for example, the Sudetenland and, and in what was left in, of, of Austria, uh, the little Austrian territories in Austria-Hungary would now become part of Germany. And so I think it was really the ending of the war and the impact on German public opinion, the failure of Germany for various reasons to understand that it had lost, that really poisoned any acceptance of the Treaty of Versailles. If you lose something, you don't, if you lose a court case, if you lose a war, you never think the judgment is fair. But in the case of the Germans, they felt it was completely illegitimate. And that, I think, was shared across a whole swath of German public opinion, shared by the bureaucracy, which was largely unreconstructed from the Wilhelmine period, shared by the judiciary, shared, of course, by the military high command, who did not want to take any blame for their part in what had been a defeat. Gradually, that view gained acceptance in the English-speaking world, and it has remained, I think, that way ever since. And the French never had quite the same view of it. The French felt that Germany had been defeated and should have signed such a treaty. But we still get, I think, the view that the Treaty of Versailles was a wicked and punitive one. My view is it wasn't all that bad that Germany had lost, that Germany did lose some territory. There's a lot of debate about how much it actually lost. A lot of the territory it lost went into Poland and had been Polish-speaking territory. A lot of the population it lost was not German-speaking but Polish-speaking and preferred to be in an independent Poland. But the myth, both of a bamboozled Wilson or a noble Wilson, I think there are two myths about Wilson, uh, the noble Wilson, the bamboozled Wilson, and, and they sometimes merge, and a Germany that was very, very unfairly treated persists. My view is that it's much more nuanced than that, but feel free to disagree with me. Thank you.